Hello and welcome to another podcast from Foundation for Change and I am delighted to be joined by the usual team. They're all here today. That's Heather. Hiya. Antonia. Hello. Bex. Hello. Tonya. Hello. And last but not least, Bob. Hey. And I'm joined by me as well, Liz. Today, I'm delighted. So, um, today's podcast is actually it's kind of the, the the sort of last of the of the three that are connected. Um, the the first two were about core beliefs, and this last one is about shame. And you know, it's a bit of a difficult subject. I mean, just kind of let me ask the team straight off. When I say shame, how does that feel? Not in the stomach. <laughs> yes. Anybody else? Really uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, mine's the same as Bob. The stomach knots up. Yeah. I mean, there's a definite kind of just a response to that word. So um, as usual with our podcasts, I want to kind of dig a bit into that, dig, dig, dig a bit deeper into why that is, rather than just kind of go, shame is really horrible. Ooh, don't want to think about it. You know, as with everything, we, we're kind of... Uh, in the business of looking up, looking what the reasons for things are, you know, what, why is that? So um, I think it'd probably be quite a good place to start off by just distinguishing between guilt and shame. So again, can I ask, ask anybody from the team, what, what's the difference between guilt and shame or is there a difference? Isn't guilt something that you feel, something that you've done personally, whereas shame is something that's kind of happens outside to bring that feeling to to you it's not something that that had potential I know (laughs) nearly nearly come on come on keep going it's something that you've done wrong and um shame is shame is something else it's not it's done maybe to you or (laughs) at you I'm laughing because you, you're all kind of you're all kind of good on guilt, but not good on shame. I think I think shame's invisible. Like I don't think it's actually a cause. So um, I'm going to do some waffle here, but I feel like yeah, if you pin guilt, but shame is just like this invisible thing that is really hard to uh, visualize, um, to kind of like you know know where it specifically comes from. You know, if you got it. No, I don't think you do. I don't think you do until you have an awareness of it. Okay. But what's the feeling of having it? Neutral. The feeling is that you um, want to kind of isolate yourself from that feeling. You want to run away from it. So you might not be aware that you're, you're, you're feeling shame, but it is a feeling of where you're trying to kind of um, hide behind something. So it's not visible um it doesn't stop yeah i'll be coming to that later just you stop that there you say no more right um but you're all scabbing around on shame a bit um any more for any more before we is it like individual and collective i'm just Um, thinking of like social shame and shame having a kind of social purpose and may not be something that i mean heather and tony have already said there's something you may not have necessarily done yourself it's like a kind of an external force where guilt is quite often like a very individual feeling yeah you're coming quite close to it and Antonio any 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 more so warm 
yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll say, but it's like, um, you know, Cluedo or something. It's like, oh, not quite. Uh, go on. Any... I would say shame is really hard to like anchor to a specific point. Guilt, you can feel guilty over one specific thing, but shame is, I don't know, I think Beck said it, like a collective feeling about something that you can't pin on a certain event or reason. Okay. I mean, there, there is a bit of a kind of agreement amongst, you know, people who write about shame. Of which there's quite a lot of sort of, you know, sort of stuff written and, and stuff on the internet. Once again, kind of quite a lot of it's American, but it's quite a lot lot out there about shame and it, it sort of tends to to be that it's been the difference has been expressed as um it's the guilt is a focus it's the difference is a focus on self as opposed to a focus on behavior so people have sort of expressed it like this so i did a horrible thing is shame it's me you know i i, I did this horrible thing whereas uh, guilt being like i did this horrible thing it's more like the behavior Does that makes sense that you yeah. know it's an action rather than a than a feeling and i think you know the feeling can be collective but it can also that that shame can also be a very individual and very private thing and and the other, the other kind of point that people make is that the the sort of emotional and physiological experience of guilt that's you know how you feel it in the body of guilt is quite different from shame so when people are guilty they tend to be kind of worried and tense and they might have remorse but they're actually also looking for ways to kind of conceal their guilt there's a kind of there's a more shiftiness to it whereas when I asked you you know at the beginning of the podcast how you felt by the word shame there was that kind of real physical knot in the stomach and, you know, shame's being kind of described, you know, in lots of different ways as having shame is to be feeling exposed, to be flawed, to be inadequate, to be worthless or deficient or diseased or defective or lonely or invisible. I mean, these are just some of the, 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 the words that people use around shame or rejected. And what I mean, you know, given the, the, the last few podcasts, what, what do those kind of um, adjectives, what are those descriptions of emotions around shame? Uh, what are they like? What do they remind you, remind you of? The core beliefs that we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like I'm not good enough and I don't fit in and I'm different. And that's the, that's the feeling for me of like the shame feeling. So it's all kind of stems from the core belief. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of, you know, this is, um, what, what's kind of suggested as the difference between guilt and, and, and shame. Shame is it really kind of inhabits that core, very core of you. And okay. as, we, as we looked at last week, you know, that can also be a collective thing as well. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted. I was getting too excited about my point. I was thinking like, I wonder also if guilt is something that people do and can express a little bit more easily than shame. Yeah. just because of religion and people kind of are familiar with Catholic guilt and what you should be guilty of, you know, what you should be, what you should feel guilty about, you know, it's kind of in the social discourse a lot more, whereas shame is something so deeply secret and personal. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. You know, um, and it feels, there's, some, there's something about the flavor of shame being flawed yeah. or inadequate rather than doing something wrong and bad, you know, and quite quite 
quite kind of, you know, I, 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 my claim was that I'd only ever stolen a, or something once, which was a packet of um, polos from a shop when I was about, um, about five, I think, and I was absolutely mortified by it. And, um, but it, you know, I felt very guilty, but it was the act that I felt guilty about, not the, the me, you know, mind you, it was only a packet of polos after all. Hey? Um, it's a good point because I wonder if, if kids actually feel shame a bit more like oh, viscerally than adults do, because shame is just such a childish thing, isn't it? It's like being a kid where somebody goes, no, you're naughty. And you just run away and you just feel like, oh, my God, like, what have I done? I'm like the worst thing in the world. But when you grow up, um, it's kind of it, it, it's more of a kind of I, I don't know. It's weird. I don't really know where I'm trying to get with this. No, no, I, I understand that. And it's, it's not in my notes, but you're absolutely right. In a way, I was thinking of like lots of people when kids do things wrong, they go, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself. And there's lots of shame is put on kids, actually that is not necessarily, um, you know, worthy of, of, of the kind of level of, of, of that shame, yeah? Exactly. Well, when you... Guilt is also quite a kind of cerebral, kind of head thing. You feel yeah. guilty about certain things and it's kind of related to thoughts where shame is a real kind of visceral kind of tummy, Bobby. shoulders, you know, everything kind of clenching feeling rather than it just being in your head. Yeah. Kind of like like a core belief that you, you kind of like internalize it, then it's kind of so far inside that when you do feel it, it's like oh oh it's a bit uncomfortable and you've got to kind of hide it. Totally, yeah. I mean that that's um, we're going to look at a kind of bit of a model about shame later, and that you know the, the kind of basis of that model is that people need to hide shame. You know, it's the thing that you do not want anybody to know about you. So um, and I want I want to move on to this kind of the. One of the one of the kind of ideas about shame is around self-awareness. So when I just say like self-awareness, what 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 what's your response? How would you describe self-awareness? Being aware of oneself feeling. <laughs> like just change the words around. Yeah. Awareness of self. There we go. <laughs> what what you but you said, Tony, awareness of feelings. Yeah, your your feelings and your emotions. And um, and how they come out, how it works physically as well in you and stuff, and just being able to be aware of that and notice what's going on. Yeah. Or something's going on. Are we all in agreement with that? Mm -hmm. Sounds quite good. Sounds like the kind of thing we're working toward on our programmes or, yeah, we want, want, want people to kind of get to understand themselves a bit more. Are there any other kind of takes on self-awareness? like an understanding of yourself I suppose kind of what Tonya just said but just being aware why and why you're feeling certain things yeah and like you know like um awareness of not just kind of what's going on in in yourself and how you act and behave but awareness of external stuff like you know um your class or your race and like how all these things match up like you know internally um so society, really. Ah, there you go. Uh, brilliant, Bex. That's exactly kind of, you're kind of at the beginning of a kind of really important distinction here because, you know, like what has self-awareness got to do with shame, you kind of think. So um, there, was a, there, there are a 
there are, there are two social psychologists called Shelley Duval and Robert Wickland, and they kind of developed this this concept of like there being two types of self awareness. So the first is what they call they call objective self awareness, which is actually so that the the focus of attention is on your own inner feeling and thoughts, and I think that's the kind of self-awareness Tonya was describing. And, and it's the kind of self-awareness and self-understanding that we're trying to help people achieve. Or, you know, you could say that, that you know, people who are doing step work in 12-step fellowships or something, you know, what they're trying to do is to get to understand themselves and, and develop an awareness about themselves. But what's really interesting is that uh, Duval and Wickland actually identify another type of, of self-awareness that they call subjective self-awareness. And this, I mean, you know, in the language of kind of social psychology, the attention is on the self as a social object. So, you know, forgive that kind of, the, the, the kind of description sounds a bit obscure or something, but what do you think they mean by the self as a social object? I think, Bex, you can probably pick this up because you started it. <laughs> it's kind of like how you um, exist in society. So, you know, um, you know, like your class, for instance, like where do you live? Like, you know, what are some of the out external factors which affect your life compared to somebody who might live in like Norfolk and have like a townhouse by the sea? So these things will kind of, you know, have an effect on kind of like not only how you see the world, but, you know, how you live in it. And how you see yourself. I mean, that, that's what they're kind of getting at. Is that you've got a kind of self-awareness. It's like you know yourself and you're kind of, or you're, you might be learning to know yourself and a bit of aware of your own kind of thoughts and feelings. But they say there's a kind of another self-awareness. It's when you exist in the world and you're aware of how people see you. I mean, what, what do you kind of, as a team, what do you think about that idea of almost having like a, a sort of split self in a way? Like you existing personally and then you existing in this this social sphere how does that feel i mean yeah. if you grow up as a woman or as a girl you're going to experience different things than you would as a boy like being shouted out because someone can see your pants when you're climbing on the monkey bars wearing a skirt and getting massive shame for that as opposed to you know the person is looking at my pants why aren't they feeling the shame you know and all the boys who are doing it and don't don't get to show off their knickers, you know. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a bit of a kind of obscure philosophical, I can't even say the word, philosophical point. But, you know, most of the sort of the main ideas around shame are, are kind of are expressed in philosophy. And a bit like Heather's example of the girl climbing on the monkey frame, um, like in um, Jean-Paul Sartre's novel, philosophical novel being in nothingness I guess um I mean Sartre is a philosopher right French obviously um but um he he describes shame as he is he tells this little story about there's somebody it's all a bit pervy like somebody's on his knee looking through a keyhole spying on his lover and in in the moment of that when they're doing that they're just you know they're full of jealousy they're, they're, they're full of cure. They want to sort of, you know, know what their lover's doing. And then the person, this bloke, notices somebody is watching him. And it's only when he's being watched that he experiences the shame of what he's doing. So the whole point about shame, um, you know, from a certain kind of perspective, is that we experience shame in the gaze of another person. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. in social being and that I you know I, I kind of we hold our experience of shame very closely in, inside of us because it's the, the thing we can't let anybody see but it, it's all down to how we're perceived socially mm-hmm. yeah makes sense I was sort of um I, my example of that is sort of being a mum and not having a perfect family what society says I've always felt a guilt for that and um, although I know that I've done it, I've done a really good job, but there's always a feeling that I failed in that area. And I think that will stay with me for, yeah, it's a guilt, it's a guilt thing. And I know that is how the society the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there's a distinct, isn't it? Because guilt is like, would be if you'd been a terrible mother, which you haven't been. This is it. When I weigh up the situation, it's um, and I think it is. It's it's, it's a deep, yeah, it must be a deep feeling, and it is must be when it's uncovered is shame because I couldn't fulfil that for my children. But on the other hand, I have fulfilled it. But well, the feeling is, you, yeah, it's like not you couldn't fulfil it, but you felt that you hadn't because of external values. I mean, yeah, and I think the the feeling stays kind of because it was something I never managed to quite do. What do you mean about being a single mum? Yeah, but having the perfect family, mum, dad, nice family, home, everything. So yeah, I feel like only through society's way, that is a society's shame based that I've carried that with me and always sort of whipped myself for that. Which is a really is another really interesting way of looking at things because it's always the women that are shamed for having like single parents. It's not the man who's shamed for leaving their children. So it, it feels like it feels like it's making sense this idea that you know shame is a kind of an external sort of social set of values. And we talked we talked in the last podcast, didn't we, about um, Bob brought up the idea of meritocracy. Do you want to recap on that, Bob? Yeah, so we were talking about core beliefs and how some of them become, you know, come from your experience as a kid when you're um, at school or from your parents. But we also talked in the second podcast of that kind of trilogy around like how lots of those core beliefs come from outside. And we were talking about this idea of the meritocracy, which is where, you know, you will go as far as you do in your life based on how much you how much work you put in so you the the kind of the rewards that you reap are based on you know merit and how much effort you put in and if you haven't put in the effort you don't deserve getting anything and if you haven't gotten anything and you haven't gone very far in life it's your fault because you haven't tried hard enough yeah and you know we, we kind of live in a very i mean actually we live in a shame-based society we, i think we talked about this on the codependency because it's kind of very much part of like the theory of codependency really is that if you're always measuring yourself against others and in in in, in bob's description of uh you know meritocracy you'd be kind of measuring yourself against people who were born into kind of you know they're probably born into privileged um ethnicity put born into privileged financial situations born into privilege geographically you know you might be born in the southeast you're a, a white male and you've been born into quite a lot of a family with quite a lot of existing money but you know to compare yourself against that person who then went to oxford 
or Cambridge and then kind of got, you know, their first job was, you know, I don't know, some kind of, you know, working as a lawyer on 60 grand for a trainee or something, you know, and then you inherit, inherit a house a house from your dead auntie Marjorie, you know, it's like money just kind of comes, whereas if you're born in very opposite circumstances, it, it's a bit, you know, kind of painful to be constantly comparing yourself to people that just come from very different circumstances from you. I, you know, I agree. And it's also like this feeling that you feel safe. If you have all that stuff, you have feel safe enough in order to go out and get the internship and do the six months for free before you get your 60 grand, you know, yearly check as a lawyer. You've just have the security within yourself to do that because, you know, you've never had to worry about the external stuff. Um, and, you know, I suppose that's the stuff that Tonya was touching on, that society says that you have to be like this. So yeah. you always feel shame for not having it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's that internal feeling of being born with that in core of safety inside of you. Or not, you know. Yeah. This, is like, this is like the pod, this is like the uh, posh, you know, um, bashing podcast, isn't it? Ah, next week we'll be on the streets ranting and shouting. Um, but I, th I think, you know, what we're trying to do here is to sort of identify that people will often feel really painful feelings of shame around stuff that is just totally beyond their control and always was. Yeah, it's, you know, it was never going to be there. So people are carrying a lot of shame around stuff that is really not their shame. They might have done things they could feel guilty about, but there's not that that kind of level of shame is often, you know, not warranted at all. But nevertheless, people feel it really, really personally. Um, and this is why philosophers are really interested by shame, because it's like, you know, how can something that I mean, Bex, at the beginning, you described shame as kind of an invisible. And how can this thing that's kind of invisible and not even due to, due to the actions that you've you've you know uh, your own personal actions it's nothing to do with what you've done or haven't done but how how people can take on that feeling is is you know very sort of fascinating on on one level have there been any studies on on the relationship between the patriarchy and shame because i'm just thinking like how much of the stuff we're talking about so far has its roots in the patriarchy mm. so whether it's what heather was talking about and kind of like girls being made to feel ashamed rather than the guys who were doing the perving this idea of the meritocracy or this idea of kind of you know this, this the very idea of competition and comparing yourselves against other people is a very male thing you know we're, we're kind of socialized to believe that we need to compete with each other that's capitalism rather than collaborate and cooperate yeah i mean you know the, the, I'm, I'm absolutely sure and i'm not able to quote you anything but i'm actually sure there's there's lots of writing on on that i mean that it, when you talk talking it just reminds me of that really lovely bell hooks quote that that i know we talk about on the feminism course which is once again i'm not going to be able to quote it verbatim but uh, you know bell hooks uh, who's an um, american african-american writer sort of says the first victims of patriarchy are men because mm -hmm. they're you know they're they're told to sort of psychically i think just like psychically mutilate part mm -hmm. of themselves you know and 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 that we live in a world that is you know it's actually you're right it operates on the currency of shame yeah you know, I, I, yeah. I can't go to school today, Mum, because I've got shit trainers. Yeah. 
And for those mums that are listening, I'm sure you've all had to kind of, that's a really painful position for you to be in as well. I'm sorry, we can't afford you any decent trainers. Yeah, it's little all the way or whatever. Yeah. And that again is society. Yeah. Telling you how you should be and how you, where you can fit in and where you can't fit in. So class again comes into that and that shames, shames you and you grow up with that and you, you know, and I was thinking earlier, shame is not really spoke about very much either with when, when you're sort of in recovery or going into anything, you know, it's not really discussed, I don't think, in depth. It's more talking about other stuff around it, guilt and stuff like that, but I've never really had a conversation about shame with anybody until I come to Foundation for Change. Yeah despite the fact that it drives so much of our behaviour. Yeah, it, it does. It sort of does, you know, what, learning about that and unpacking that and seeing what that is was, like, a massive a massive thing to, like, sort of work with because it wasn't, it wasn't mine. It's not yeah. Mine. It's, it, I know that, you know, we're, we're all kind of gathered as a team here and there's uh, various one various members of the team have been working on different projects and that and it it you know it is it, it's relatively recent the discussion that, that there is at least some discussion on shame that's coming into kind of recovery services but if, if you look like if you google it there's as i say there's lots written in america and the main the main people talking about it are like people like Brene brown who's kind of you know she's a you know nice human being but it's a bit it's not it doesn't quite capture the I don't think the experience of kind of you know the people we're working with who've had addiction problems or or kind of you know sort of systemic inequality you know just like that's a posh word for saying of being fucking poor all my life it doesn't quite you know Brene Brown talking about shame it doesn't quite sort of uh connect I don't think so I think it's a good, it's a, it's a fantastic topic to start talking about. Um, so, so can we just kind of, you know, for the for the sort of sake of, of of making it really clear, can we just kind of round up this this first section and just make the link? What's the link between shame and core beliefs? Do we think? I'm asking you all a, t a question, class, and I, I want you all to give me the right answer, but I just want to, to see if we can round up what, what that link is. The shame, the shame you might feel would stem from the core beliefs that you've, that you've carried for so long and that you want to prevent yourself being exposed so you cover them up. Yeah, with kind of rules and start behaviours that that dictate how you live to cover up those core beliefs we talked about in the first episode those very kind of personal beliefs that you you kind of um start to understand or believe that's true about yourself from kind of parents and caregivers and then as we talked about in the second episode you know there's a whole load of kind of social impacts that that, that really kind of compound or make worse those core beliefs and we live in this society like we just talked about that's full of kind of shame or potential for shame like you're not rich enough you're not seen enough you're not famous enough I don't know you know you're not you know you have a perfect family um you know there's loads of reasons that that kind of shame functions as a sort of social currency or in a way of making people feel really bad in the world because they're not the same as other people or as good as other people so 
I, I guess I'm guessing that if you kind of add that to already existing feelings of kind of you know less than of, of negative core beliefs that that's a really really painful place to be mm. obviously you know it's really really painful stuff and the fact that not many really people talk about shame I was thinking, like, I think researching shame must be fascinating. I know, like, Brene Brown talks about this in her, in her talk, which was how she went into it, where she was a researcher and she felt very kind of disconnected from the subject because she was just this kind of social scientist with a clipboard observing people. And then at some point just thought, oh, hang on a minute, like, this applies to me too. Yeah. But there was just when people, when you were just talking, I was thinking, like, my God, like, be so interesting to look at conversation like everyday conversations and do a little tally of how many tiny little conversations happen that have this kind of barb of shame mm. involved because because I just think it happens a lot and this is a really kind of banal example it's the one that came into my head so me and my partner have got two basset hounds and quite often like one of the responses people have to the hounds apart from oh my god they're so adorable and cute um is like why would you buy such dogs or why would you you know why would you kind of perpetuate this cruelty or something and it's just like I kind of get the point but it's just like lots of little comments that you know people kind of have through interactions as they go through their day which they kind of just have these little darts of shame thrown at them and I'm sure it's like way more than we realize yeah it's like a, it's like an obstacles obstacle course of shame isn't it every day is like you know you kind of start off thinking oh well another day and then you're kind of certainly if you're interacting in the outside world or then you turn on the tv and then you look oh, at you know look at this it's like oh my god you know um yeah yeah it's kind of it's really I don't, can i yeah i mean I, I i also it's like the thing about the chicken and the egg thing isn't it it's like it, where do our core beliefs come from maybe you know some of them could come from from those feelings of shame mm -hmm. yeah and 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 a kind of like building from that you know from a very young age like feeling shame about something and then that being part of those core beliefs that you kind of carry so like a little you, feedback loop isn't it yeah 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 i mean and it, you know it, it it's I mean, there's this certain kind of historicalness to it because I can remember being at primary school and feeling real shame because my dad was dead. It's not like it was my fault, um, you know, but I, I'm kind of guessing that that kind of shame doesn't particularly, you know, exist so much these days because there are quite a lot of, you know, one parent families and things like that. So, but, in, you know, in the early 1960s in England, it, it felt really shameful to only have one parent, even though, you know, Know, it was you know it was like nothing nothing they they kind of could do about that um so i'm guessing that there are different things that people ex you know kind of experience shame around that's happening now for for you know certainly young people growing up i'm guessing it's probably quite a lot to do with money these days because of the the, the actual kind of um growth in sort of um inequality in the uk over the last 20 years you know means that quite a lot of kids can't afford to eat and you know i can't imagine how that must feel to know that your your, your family can't afford to feed you um that's going to have a you know really really um huge amount of impact on kids not just you know like so it's not just the case of oh kids need food because you know they need to kind of have food in their stomachs to grow there's a, there's the whole kind of psychological health aspect of it isn't it it's like how 
how poverty impacts people psychologically as they're growing up is is you know um an area which i know that people are doing a lot of writing and research and there are really good organizations doing work around it but it's just going to get it really needs some kind of work done doesn't it yeah, I think because of that, that just becomes shame-based for the children growing up as well. Yeah. And they feed the core belief, not being good enough. Totally, yeah. I mean, what what I thought I might wanted to do in the second half of the podcast was really just, I thought it might be helpful for people to look at, uh, you know, some theories, if you like, about what we do with shame. So, we, you know, we, we've kind of established that people can really hold on to kind of shame because of 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 the world of how they are in the world you know that shame is something around being being observed by the other um but also it's like what actually people do with those feelings of shame and I came across something that I thought was really interesting um rather geeky way I hope, I hope you agree but um there's a guy called Eric Anderson who's written sort of several kind of psychology books and he 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 wrote in his book in his book childhood and society um but he basically wrote and suggested that shame can kind of be absorbed by guilt okay this is a quite complicated thing to understand so what what do you think do you understand what he's trying to suggest that shame can be absorbed by guilt so you think you're guilty and you don't realize it's actually shame so you're blaming yourself for something no no i don't think that's what he's he's suggesting any other guesses here i was like yeah tonya that sounds amazing <laughs> well he's kind of like that but he basically he he's saying that if people have if people you know have an uncomfortable feeling of shame that they hold but they might not name it that you know they might just have this feeling of be feeling shit right you know let's call it feeling shit and um that actually if they externalize that feeling by behaving in ways like you know it could be like behaving in ways about criminal activity or just you know behaving badly being an absolute prick um you know but in a way like acting out behaving in in terrible ways somehow somehow distracts from your own shame then it's like look i'm guilty you know i haven't got shame but i am guilty look at the guilt not the shame sabotage self-sabotage to make yourself feel better in a way yeah a bit but it's also a bit like hiding those because shame is a very vulnerable feeling right because like shame is the thing you don't want people to know about. But if you are going out in the world doing things that make you guilty, you know, like behaving in kind of destructive ways, it's a bit like nobody notices the shame because it's covered up by guilt. I just really, I thought it was really interesting about how kind of people throw out different signals to cover this kind of vulnerability of shame. It's a smokescreen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a smoke screen. James Bond car that like shoots out like oil slick and then <laughs> smoke. God, I had one. That was amazing. Um, um, when I was younger, I had a little kind of corgi James Bond car. That was really cool. Oh, you wow. kind of press things and little kind of um, guns would come out the side and things like that. Anyway. Because it makes it sound like it's almost deliberate. And it can't be because I guess there's like an unconscious. Yeah motivation to create the smoke screen to hide the shame which makes me think that the shame is so unbearable yeah. 
that people do these quite extreme things to kind of create these smoke screens. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think perhaps I hadn't kind of explained it fully enough, but that's what what that's what he's sort of talking about, and that's what I was really interested in. I just thought, oh, this is really fascinating. It's like the things people do to cover to run, you know, to to bring a smoke screen around the, the shame they feel, mm -hmm. because you know the you don't want anybody to see it. it it's like it needs to be absolutely hidden and this kind of this also led me to and so and eric anderson was also talking about the uh, the the role that shame plays it seems to play a really important role in anger and hostility and you know it's been sort of one of the big sort of pieces of work that, that's been done around shame is that individuals protect their self-worth worth of feelings of inferiority and shame by kind of externalizing blame for their failures and you know being hostile uh, toward other people which makes you kind of worry about Donald Trump a bit doesn't it um you know that, but it's a bit like you know that kind of projection isn't it of like we the, that kind of real deep inadequacy leading to um you know externalizing anger outwards yeah with you yes yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very bizarre sometimes i kind of i watch i read a lot about politics and i kind of watch things and i find it really strange that that people that commentators comment there's a lot of commentary on politics is it's just like takes the behavior on surface level but you know with, with any little bit of psychological insight, you'd start looking at people like jo uh, Boris Johnson and Trump and just, you know, it's just disturbing, isn't it? They're just like giant man babies running the world. And, you know, behave this uh, compilation of Trump moments the other day. Mm -hmm. And um, like every, literally every single comment, and I don't think the person who put this video compilation together was thinking like, oh, I'm gonna just give an example of projection, but like yeah. such extreme projection. Yeah. And he was saying things like to reporters, like you're rude, like you're nothing, like all this stuff. But, and he, I mean, nothing's probably not a good example, but like the rudeness, the lies, like all of this stuff he was basically accusing everyone else of was just like him. Yeah. And people just think it's entertainment, or people just think like, oh, he just says it how it is, kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like, there should be some kind of really deep psychological analysis. I don't know, I think we've got a new podcast in, in the make here, is like, <laughs> let's uh, discuss Trump and Boris, and <laughs> yeah. let's unpick this, uh, shall we? <laughs> you know, when I was kind of, you know, researching this project, podcast, or, or, or reading stuff, I was just like, yeah, in a way, a lot of the writing about you know, the psychology of shame it is writing about people who have been traumatised and victimised, but it also, you know, it seems to forget all the people out there in the world who are just behaving in this in this way that's just pathetic. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, it is just like, you know, textbook projection. Can I just really quickly say something? Because I always just think like projection is one of those words that I think we use and we're, we're really familiar with. You spot it, you got it. And yeah, exactly. So spot it, you got it. But also like I'm always really fascinated by looking at the function that it serves because it's, it's really connected to this. So when someone feels something so 
deeply in, you know in themselves and this is kind of very unconscious but like when there's a part of themselves which they really don't like they want to project it outwards and it connects to this idea we've talked about before around kind of discomfort you know as human beings we cannot sit in discomfort we need to get rid of it so one of the ways of doing that is throwing it out so whenever we're encountering kind of aspects of our own identity that we feel very uncomfortable with we project and we kind of like you know the general target of that is someone who we think is doing that thing so I just think like it's worth kind of saying that because I think like the function of like projection is really interesting but the function of it is fascinating it's absolutely primitive as well I mean on another you know maybe on another podcast in the future we can do something on Melanie Klein because she is you know a psychoanalyst who, who kind of described that very very you know very primitive way that babies project bad feelings onto one of the tits so you get good tit bad tit and like you know left tit is bad good tit is only even be left tit's bad but you know like babies project really uncomfortable feelings that they're feeling onto external objects and the only object they know when they're babies is titty or you know <laughs> Bottle, bottle, I guess, if, if they're, they're fed by bottles, but it, you know, that because that's their entire kind of focus of their, the, you know, their existence is that kind of feeding. But yeah, it's so primitive and so um, I mean, primitive. Sorry, maybe you know that is the, the oh. right. Yeah, yeah, it, like, yeah. So basic that yeah. so it's also something we don't really think about. The, the this idea of kind of what we do with shame. That's this this this. This is I've included this on um, in the handout for this podcast, so there'll, there'll be a visual representation representation of it. But now I'll have to describe it for you. Um, a, a psychologist called Donald Nathanson, who's American, um, sort of developed a model to describe the ways that humans tend to deal with shame, and so he kind of starts off understanding that. For most people, almost anything, right, anything is better than shame. So coming back to this idea of Bob's like, you need to get it out, right? So he developed a way of sort of visualising that as a, a compass. So if you can kind of all kind of imagine a compass, um, at, the, at the north, at the north of the compass is attacking others. So taking the shame out and aggression. At the south is attacking the self through depression. Um, at the east is anger, which, which is kind of, but it's also hiding from the self. Um, so he uses addiction to describe hiding from self, sort of doing activities that keep you away from feeling that shame. And at the west, he de describes hiding from others um and kind of withdrawing and the top the kind of the top half of the compass are kind of feelings of fear and anger and the bottom half feelings of distress and disgust um did any of that make any sense since i had to describe it to you they're just ways of describing four different responses to shame and, and one is kind of taking it outwards and one is two are taking it outwards in a way and one is taking self-destruction and the other one is withdrawing mm -hmm. i think it's really um, interesting yeah it made sense because of shame and what i mean I, it's when i was kind of um looking at this and thinking about withdrawal what what kind of other terms do you recognize for, for that kind of withdrawal that are really common around addiction 
isolation. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, that's such a kind of that's such a kind of common experience of people in addiction is to actually feel so such kind of deep shame that they will literally want to cut themselves off from others. And also those two things go really hand in hand, don't they? Because quite often it's like isolation and addiction. Yeah. At the yeah. same time. So it's kind of like hiding from others because you feel this really deep shame and you feel like you can't put that on other people around you or you, you know, you're too ashamed to be around other people, but also like sitting by yourself is too painful. Yeah. So you have to actually then hide from yourself. That's like the yeah. second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He describes that kind of behaviour around addiction. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a kind of an interesting way of kind of describing kind of addiction as a sort of hiding from yourself. But it, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, I think for 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 all of us, you know, we I guess, you know, many of us are in recovery, but also for the people we work with, one of the things we hear again and again is like, I don't know who I am. And if you're kind of hidden from yourself. Um, so I think that um, that sort of compass of, of, of compass of shame, dear God, um, but the compass of shame, you know, is able to sort of describe a lot of the ways that people manage their shame. You know, and quite a lot of manic people manage it by um, blaming others and being really aggressive to others. And I think, you know, if we think about a domestic, uh, domestic abuse relationships, quite a lot of that behaviour seems to, uh, you know, that kind of aggressive, violent behaviour toward partners, you know, it's, it's often clearly around shame. We think about what, what might trigger that behaviour. Also incredibly shameful to experience it. Yeah. And what... And what what do you think the kind of um, how do how do you think people have experienced domestic abuse? What do they do with that shame? What what commonly do they do? Well, it's kind of internalised, or you feel guilty. It's your fault. You've done something wrong. You didn't leave. You clearly did something that was worthy of you know your partner getting upset. Mm. But I'm just, I'm just thinking actually kind of often people who are, are kind of victims of uh, domestic abuse, like the shame expressed outwards of somebody actually quite commonly kind of isolate and don't let others know and then use kind of behaviours that, that Nathanson describes as, you know, addiction of like hiding from yourself. Completely. You know, so they're like two axes, aren't they? So that the kind of horizontal axes describes what kind of set of behaviours that, that that people kind of often do who are victims of things. But the the the, the vertical axes, which is self-destructive behaviour and also aggression toward others, also dis describes the kind of set of responses that that people often um, display related to shame. Um. I wanted to ask, I hope I don't like confuse uh, things too much, but can they all like coexist together? Because, you know, you can have uh, fear and disgust or distress and anger. And then, you know, you can attack, uh, like you can be aggressive, um, but at the same time feel depressed or like hide from yourself, um, but then hide from other people. So it's kind of like they can sort of coexist together. I don't know, I'm just asking. 
yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, just my response would be yes, because this, you know, this describes the kind of complexity of human behaviour. You know, we never just fit into boxes, which is why, you know, it's, it's sometimes, sometimes useful to have kind of models or way of understanding behaviour, but not to kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, like, that's exactly how I behave. You know, looking at all these four points of the, 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 the compass of shame, I would say they can exist pretty much at the same time. And it kind of gives a name to it as well, doesn't it? I think it's language and sort of understanding, okay, yeah, that's fear. And I know it's kind of really simple, but sometimes kind of like words are really difficult and you're trying to connect it to an emotion. So disgust is like that word, like when you hear disgust, you know what that feeling is. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's really helpful. I think these sort of models are because language um, uh, can help us understand our emotions a bit better and what we're feeling. Well, on that point, and, and I totally agree, Bex, and, you know, as I say, it, it, I think it will make more sense if people look at the handout and kind of are able to see that visually. It's a bit like, you know, once again, it's a bit like juggling for radio. It's, it's Sometimes it's hard to kind of describe things on the podcast. Um, I feel like, just really quickly, I feel like this dark compass of shame needs some kind of, like, yellow brick road. Which yeah. Is like, go, go, <laughs> yeah, this is the route to take. This is what you do with shame. Because I'm looking at it thinking, fucking hell, it's so dark. Holy horses, because that's exactly where I was going. <laughs> I was going to say on kind of Bex's point about language, I was kind of, I was, I was just wanted to end, you know, wind this kind of, this particular podcast up by by asking the team, you know, how they feel the best ways are for people to kind of manage, or you know, do something with this shame, find the yellow bit road away from the the darkness, the dark compass of shame, and all that kind of really difficult behaviour what 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 helps you know i think um talking about your feelings is um one which can really help like whether i don't know if it's even necessarily of you know therapy or anything like that but friends um people you know uh, uh just being able to you know yeah i think there's a lot of things around talking at the moment and kind of you know putting expressing how you feel um can start kind of you know I know somebody personally at the moment who's going through a lot of shame um stuff which has happened like in the past and is starting to talk about it and I can see oh my god like they're actually having some language to start expressing these feelings finally well I think you started you know when you're talking about models or ways of understanding stuff sometimes you need language to kind of identify what feelings were you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I, OK, that's the word for it. OK, that helps. And I think, you know, just like, oh, understanding these things called core beliefs. You know, oh, right, OK, they might not actually be this great truth that I felt, oh, shit, I didn't really, you know, I, I've always described, like, when I encountered theory, it was like, oh, my God, this is makes sense of the world now. I just thought it was me that had those, oh, fucking hell. You know, suddenly somebody's written about these feelings I thought were just mine. And it's called something like it's named something called core beliefs. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know, like <laughs> it ain't so special. You know? Oh, loads of people have these now. Fucking hell. You know, like this is how it works. So there's something about kind of naming stuff and understanding. Any, anything else or kind of anything else that we think can help with shame? I think working... Um to be more authentic with yourself so you become more comfortable inside yourself will help shame because 
you can't really shame yourself if you're solid in the knowledge of who you are. Yeah. And the who you are is, um, you know, good enough. I think. Yeah. I think um, it's it's a phrase that's used by several people, but I really like it. It's like being good enough. I think it was Donald Winnicott that suggested you know, the good enough mother. And once again, you know, he was working with 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 women, with children, and he's like, you you need to be a good enough mother, not the best mother, not the mother that you see on telly, not the not the mother you can't aspire to, because that would just fill you full of shame. You are good enough. You're as good as you are, and that kind of that is a message that honestly should be, uh, you know, repeated regularly. It's like people can be good enough. Um, be proud of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking about something Tony said earlier about like working out like you know what isn't your shame as well. I mean it's a kind of a combination of what everyone else has already said. I think there's something about understanding your shame kind of like having a roadmap is really useful like models or text or whatever like you know I mean the Brene Brown thing was really fascinating because I think it brought shame out to a really huge audience. But I think like going through this process of trying to kind of work out like what can I let go of because it's not mine, you know, and talking about that. And I think that's really crucial. And just, yeah, be kind of, you you know, we're all kind of flawed humans. We're just trying things. I mean, if we're, you know, in a, if we want to go kind of meta or something or, you know, like look at what we're doing here you know our process as a team is we thought okay we're going to do this podcast you know fuck we've never done a podcast before this is going to be really hard how are we going to do this um and actually part of the process is just trying something as you know to the best of our abilities and and learning and getting better and and, and kind of being a, as open as we can about the process feeling like what we're trying to do is is as good as we can be but it needn't be like I don't know Louis Theroux or whoever's who's big on the podcasting. Who's big on podcasting? Russell Brand. Yeah, Russell Brand. There you go. Shout out to Russell. Um, but you know, those people have been doing it for a long time, so you know it's kind of pointless to go. Oh, we're not as good as Russell Brand, or we're not as good as you know whatever big podcasts are. Um, but you know, no, we're not. We are who we are. So there is something about what you said, Antonio, about kind of. You know, connecting with just who you are. Easy good enough. We're good enough. We're good enough. Good enough. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you. See you next time. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Take care. Safe.